Welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, I'd like to welcome you all to this three-class series in connection with Trisha Summer-Colwell, which is on the theme of universalism and particularism. And tonight we are joined by Rabbi Wendy Amsel for a session called, Does God Want Other Nations to Keep the Torah? And a God of History. Rabbi Wendy Amsel teaches Talmud and Halacha at Yeshivat Maharat and directs the Beit Midrash program, a joint project of Maharat and Yeshivat Halvei Torah. She also teaches regularly at Trisha, Pardes, and the Temple Manual Striker Center. Rabbi Wendy received smicha from Yeshivat Maharat and is an alumna of the Trisha Scholar Circle. She has a BA in History and Literature from Harvard University. So I'd like to take a moment to encourage you to ask questions, either by unmuting yourself or putting your questions in the chat. Um, if you're comfortable doing so, we'd love for you to turn on your video camera to actively participate. Um, and now, without further ado, Rabbi Wendy Amzalam. Great. Sarah, thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be learning with everybody tonight. And again, exactly as Sarah said, if anybody has a comment or a question, please either just unmute yourself or, um, or put it in the chat, and hopefully Sarah or I will see it. Um, so I think that when we think about this question of universalism and particularism, one kind of core question at the, at the heart of it is, do you think it would be better if the entire world kept the Torah? Or would that be some sort of ideal situation or not? And then on the one hand, to the extent that we believe the Torah to be a moral code, it seems like, yeah, that would be ideal, right? If everybody kept these laws, that, that would be a great, a great thing. Um, on the other hand, to the extent that the Torah is a, uh, is a, has a message that's grounded in a particular story of a particular people, or the story of the people of Israel, uh, what would it mean if, if, if everyone kept the Torah? What would that mean for the, the particular story of, 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 of the people of Israel? Um, there's a, a very famous Eidetic idea that we are going to trace this evening, that before God offered the Torah to the people of Israel, God offers the Torah to other nations. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting thing to think about, right? Why, why would the rabbis want us to imagine the Torah being offered to other people first? What does that mean about our uh, about the Jewish people's special role in receiving the Torah, right? Are the last ones to be invited to the party? Does God intend, does God intends for the Torah to be specifically for the people of Israel all along? Why bother offering it to other people? Um, and, and, and really, what, what's God's agenda, right? Is, is when God offers the Torah to the other nations, is God hoping that the other nations will accept it, or is God not? Um, and what we're going to look at tonight are four different kind of refractions of this agadic idea of God offering the Torah around, um, and we'll see what kind of the, the meaning of that offering will, will, will shift depending on which text we're looking at. So the first version that we have of this idea appears in source number one. I will share my screen now. So the earliest version of, of, um, of this idea appears in the Mechilta. Mechilta is a work of Tanaitic Midrash. It's from roughly the same time period as the Mishnah, so kind of early 3rd century or so. Scholars disagree about whether the, the Mechilta and other works of Midrash Halacha predate the Mishnah or postdate it, but they're basically from roughly the same time period. And this is kind of our first um, encountering with this idea of God offering the Torah. So the same thing says in the Quran, we're told, well, the fichach means Therefore, the other nations, the nations of the world, were asked, they were offered the Torah, The whole reason why God offers them the Torah is so that way, afterwards, they're not able to open their mouths to God. In other words, they're not able to complain. Saying the following thing, 
in the which by all means Christ should have a living. But God is worried that at some point in the future, if God doesn't offer the Torah now, the other nations will say, hey, what's going on? It's really not fair. If you had offered the Torah to us, we would have also accepted it. So it's not fair to make the nation of Israel be special, right? They had access to something that we didn't have access to. And so therefore, God offers them the Torah in order to be able to say, God wants to be able to say, look, you were offered the Torah, you didn't accept it, and so now the fact that Israel has a particular special status makes sense because Israel was willing to accept this and you weren't. Now, how do we know this? Like, nowhere in the Torah does it say that God offers the Torah around to other nations. And for people who've read um, both uh, the, uh, the telling of the giving of the Torah in the book of Exodus and also in the book of Deuteronomy, at neither point do we hear about God offering the Torah around. But the, uh, the Midrash locates, locates the idea of God offering the Torah around from a verse in chapter 33 of the book of Deuteronomy. The verse starts over here, we see it on our source, Vayomar Hashem Nisinai Ba. I'll just read you the whole verse, you'll have it in your minds. Hashem Nisinai Ba, Vizarach Meseir Lamo, Ophir Mehar Paran, Batam Yivavot Kodesh, Nimino Ishrat Lamo. For people who have the practice of going to synagogue on Simchat Torah, this verse might sound very familiar. It's the second verse of uh, Parshat Mizot HaBracha. Uh, many synagogues have the tradition of reading these verses over and over again, so that every person who wants to can be called up to the Torah to get an Aliyah, so it might sound like a familiar pursuit. Um, but the, uh, the idea of the verse, right, so God, in the verse, God comes from Sinai, and then the next part of it is and shines forth from Seir. Seir is normally associated with the descendants of Esau. And so the assumption of the Midrashist here is that God goes, God is at Sinai, about to give the Torah to the people of Israel, but first goes to Esau. First goes to the descendants of Esau. You'll notice here he's called Esau Harasha, Esau the wicked one. The Omer land. So God says to the descendants of Esav, Would you like to accept the Torah? Uh, and then you can reasonably say, What's written in the Torah? So God says to the descendants of Esav, In the Torah it says, Thou shalt not kill or do not murder. This is great. And that's the inheritance that our father Esau gave us. As we know, actually, the truth is, here it might really refer even to their to to, to Isaac, right? Isaac gives Esau a bracha, Asa Bachatif you will live by your sword. Right? And so this is the blessing that our father inherited, right? Living by the sword. We can't give up on living by the sword and killing people. The Torah is obviously not for us. Remember, the next part of the verse is Hoshia Mehar Paran. Midbar Paran is associated with Yishmael. He lives there. And so now in the Midrash, God goes and visits, oh, sorry, not Yishmael, God goes and visits um, Ammon and Moab, Midla Abne Ammon and Moab. And God says to the descendants of Ammon and Moab, Mikabrima Temetatua, will you accept the Torah? Amirim Akatuba, they also say that that's written in the Torah. Amalahem Lotinaf, God says, in the Torah it says, um, do not commit incest. They respond and they say, Kulanu Mimu, they say, wait a minute, that's our family story. Our mother 
this Seth was our father, who was also their father, right? That's the story of Lot and his daughters. We all come from this incestuous relationship, and so therefore it does not make sense. We cannot possibly accept a Torah that forbids incest. Yesti uh, was a man from the verse that Tayyamashabin of Lot and Abiyah, but the two daughters of Lot uh, were impregnated by their father. They asked me, Kabir, so in that case, how could we possibly accept it? Uh, God then moves on to Ishmael, this is the name of her own reference, um, and God speaks to the descendants of Ishmael and says to them, when you accept the Torah, and, um, and they, of course, say also, very reasonably, that's written in the Torah, God says, in the Torah it says, no, to no, do not steal. They say, this the angel, when he visited our ancestor Hagar, the angel promised Hagar, that, um, that Ishmael will be this wild man, his hand will be in everything. Um, and so we know that the descendants of Ishmael are sort of connected to, to stealing, and we say, we can't possibly accept the Torah if the Torah says, do not steal. And God finally uh, gets back to Sinai and, and gets to the people of Israel. That's the end of that verse uh, from Parshat Ezotabacha. Um, at God's right hand, there's a fiery law onto them. And they immediately, the people of Israel don't ask Makatuba, instead, they all open their mouths and they say, Whatever God says, we will do and we will hear. Uh, and so there is a total acceptance on their part of the Torah. Um, I'm going to stop the share for a moment. Um, so I think that the two sort of main questions we'd want to ask about this midrash. The first question is, what's the point of this midrash? The author of this midrash want us to know. So for people who are just in this room, I'm curious if anybody has any ideas. What do you think? What, what's, the, what's the goal of the author of this midrash? We have any thoughts? It would, it, would seem, it, would seem, it would seem to be about meeting the the, um, the moral objection that Israelites themselves might have. Okay, say a little more. Do you mean that? Yeah, I mean it's it, it actually it, it's an in-house communication because it's not it's a, it's actually it's it's hardly believable uh, since because it's quoting our internal traditions and we don't you know um, uh, if you want you know if you want to know. Whether it was taken around to those other nations, mm -hmm. well, ask them. Ask the rabbis who tell them have told them. But that's not the. That's not what the rabbis tell you should do. Okay, that is a great point. Right? So obviously, this midrash is written from within the tradition of, of the people of Israel. But I think, to be honest, all terms, it's interesting to think about what, what is the goal of this midrash? Right? What, is the, what does the midrash want us to know? And I think right from the start, we know that the midrash doesn't assume that God offers the Torah around in a neutral way. Right? Because from the very beginning, we're told the reason why God offers the Torah is so that afterwards, people won't be able to complain about it. Right? That's the, that, that's the thinking. It's not that God offers the Torah, because maybe they'll say yes. If God offers the Torah, God knows that they're going to say no, but God afterwards doesn't want them to be able to complain. Although, as we see in source number four, it doesn't really help. They'll wind up complaining anyway. But here it seems as if God is trying to sort of plan from the beginning, so that way later on they won't be able to, to have an argument. Um, and, and it seems as if part, part of that is that when each nation asks what's in the Torah, God specifically chooses to tell them the commandment that would be most difficult for them. 
and so forth. Some of it's not given for a modern or and so and so forth. But there's a sort of a calculated choice to um, to to present them with the mensal that would make it most difficult for them to to explain to us. And and for several of them, it seems like what they're saying is this goes against their core identity, right? We were blessed by angels or blessed by our ancestors with the following uh, behavioral attributes, and so the Torah really just doesn't doesn't speak to us at all. Um, Okay, the second question that I have about this Midrash is what do you think would happen if the people of Israel had said, Makatuta, what's in the Torah? Right? Because one way to read the Midrash is that maybe the um, the problem is that if you ask what's in the Torah, right, maybe you're always going to find something that makes the Torah be not not feel like it couldn't possibly be for you. And so maybe, one, maybe the reason why the people of Israel are able to accept the Torah is that they're able to accept it without asking questions, right? That's one way to read it. The other way to read it, I think, is that um, God all along wants the people of Israel to get the Torah, and so God is going to engineer a situation where they will want the Torah. And so it could be that when the uh, the nation of uh, Yishmael asks what's in the Torah, God says, don't steal, because God knows that would be the most difficult for them. But it could be that when Israel asks what's in the Torah, maybe God will choose a mitzvah that would be really lovely for them, right? Let me, you know, God might say, let me tell you all about Shabbat. Shabbat is a really great mitzvah, you're going to love it, right? So it's possible that God would respond with a um, with something that the people of Israel would want in order to make sure that Israel would say yes. Or it's possible that if Israel had asked the question of what's in the Torah, maybe God would respond with something that would be equally difficult for the people of Israel to keep. Like, for example, you know, stay away from, from deceit. And the people of Israel might say, well, wait a minute, our ancestor Jacob got his blessing through deceit. The Torah is in for us. But we don't really know. We don't know what the scenario would be if the people of Israel had asked what's in the Torah. But given that the Holy Drash is kind of crafted around the idea that God is offering the Torah to the other nations because God knows that they will say no, it seems likely that no matter what, God is going to sort of create a situation where the people of Israel will want to say yes. And it seems like there is maybe a question from Lisa. Lisa, do you have a question? Oh no, just that we'll see the link. Okay, yeah, Stephen, please. Um, yeah. Um, it, it seems to me also that it's that it's it's quite obvious that the, what Chazal are doing here is they're they're making a they're making a pitch for a basic attitude of not selfishness in order to with the attitude that one should have in terms of the Torah. You should look at the Torah in terms of what benefit it will give you or what deficits it will cause you. But you should prepare. You should be prepared. You should want just because of wanting the relatedness to God to take it on no matter what. Yeah, I think that, that I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And I would say, in addition to that, I think it's sort of. It, it, it seems to me to be clear in this midrash that God intends for the Torah to be specifically for the people of Israel, right? And the fact that the Torah is offered around is almost just kind of a farce, but there's no real assumption that the other nations will say yes to it, and God is kind of engineering a situation where they will not say yes. Now, I want to point that out, because when we look at the second source right now, it has a very different perspective. Okay. Here we go. Oh, sorry, I think I just showed the wrong thing. Second. This is from Shmuel. We're taking kind of a big chronological jump. Shmuel does a relatively late midrash. Uh, people think it was put together sometime between the 10th and the 12th century, so we're skipping a couple of hundred years. But for 
something, something very interesting happens over here, and then afterwards we'll return to our regular chronology. So in this Midrash and Shmura, if you remember, the main thing that we noticed in the first source is that the people of Israel don't ask what's in the Torah, and it seems kind of praiseworthy there, right? It seems as if the fact that they're willing to accept the Torah without asking is partly why they are the right receivers of the Torah. Um, in this midrash, I would say Israel's not asking is kind of problematized as opposed to, to praised. So we're going to start with the same idea that God offers the Torah around. We're told, When God wanted to give the Torah, God offers the Torah around to other nations, but no other nation will accept it except for Israel. Mishal. So now we're going to tell a parable and we compare this to a story. It's like the king who has a field. The king would like to entrust his field to sharecroppers who will work the field and give the king a percentage of the produce. And even though what the king is going to be getting is a percentage of whatever the farmer is able to produce, the king obviously wants a farmer who will be very industrious and kind of produce a lot of crops such that the king's share will be greater. So the king begins to interview potential sharecroppers. Kalalo Rishon calls it, summons in the first one, but Amalo, to Kabela Tahasadehazo, will you accept this field? Amalo, Kimbikoach Kashayimim. Potential sharecropper number one says, no, I don't have, I don't have the strength to work this field. It is too hard for me. I can't accept it. And so to the second and third and fourth potential share bumpers, they all say, no, too much work for me, I can't do it. The Quranic Hamishi, so then the, uh, then the king, standing for God, the king summons the fifth share bumper, and the king says, to Kabela Tahasadaz, oh, will you accept this field? So the fifth share bumper says, yeah, sure, I would be happy to accept it. I'm not the fulchat, but you'll accept it in order to, to work it and you know, give me the, my share of the produce. I'm not the one that sharecropper says, yeah, no problem, happy to give. Mishnu shnasi tochol ha'ukovira. But then when the sharecropper takes possession of the field, what does he do? He just leaves it fire and he doesn't work it at all. Amri ha'malash makpid. The Midrash says, who is the king going to be angry about that? Um, is the king going to be angry at sharecroppers 1, 2, 3, and 4 who said we can't, we can't accept this field, it's too much for us? Or will the king not in fact be angry at the one who said I can do it, but then doesn't actually work the field at all? Similarly, the king will be angry with the fifth sharecropper who accepted the field and then reneged on what he had undertaken to do. So too, now we're moving out of the parable back into our main point. So too, when God appeared on Harsinai, God did not leave aside a single nation upon whose doors God did not come knocking, asking if they wanted the Torah. But none of the nations would agree to accept the Torah to keep it. The people of Israel said, no, no, sure, and whatever God says, we will do, we will hear. And so the Midrash says, therefore, people of Israel really need to keep the Torah. Now, what I find really interesting about this source is that we have that same basic idea, right, that God offers the Torah around to other nations, the other nations don't accept it, but people of Israel do. But in the first Midrash, it was all about 
how special the people of Israel are. God all around intends for them to get the Torah. God's only offering it around because God knows the other nations will say no. And in the end, the people of Israel are so wonderful, they don't ask any questions, they just accept it. Here, it's the same basic premise, right? God offers the Torah around, people of Israel don't ask any questions. But here, the Midrash kind of problematizes it and says, well, maybe the people of Israel are a little bit overly blithe, right? Maybe they're like the fifth sharecropper who says yes without really thinking about whether they can really do it. And it seems like, at least in the parable, there's kind of, there's no blame attached to sharecroppers one, two, three, and four. Like, they sort of carefully consider the work involved and they say, look, I can't do it. And because they never sign up for the job, the king is not angry at them for, for not doing the job. Whereas the fifth sharecropper is really kind of considered to be uh, blameworthy because the fifth sharecropper undertook to do something and, and didn't. And, and really what we learn highlight over here is that in the parable, the king seems to be pretty neutral between the different sharecroppers, right? There's nothing that indicates the king would prefer for the fifth sharecropper to get it, right? Anyone who would be willing to accept it would be great, right? We don't get the sense from, 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 the, from the parable in the Midrash that the king has a preference between the sharecroppers. And if we then sort of apply that to Israel and the other nations, it seems as if God is kind of totally neutral about which people will accept the Torah. Um, it doesn't matter to God if more would accept it, that would also be great. But it's basically whoever it is that um, that would want the Torah and be willing to do it, God would be willing to give it to them. And then the question is, well, just are, are they actually able to, to live out their words? They're able to sort of perform, perform what they've undertaken. Um, it seemed like someone had a question. Um, let me just see. It was someone whose last name was her, I think. Yeah. Yeah, please. Um, um, it seems that because the Rachel did not ask any questions, the final who breaks the contract, mm-hmm. whoever that is with any land is still happy and holding responsible. So why should God be angry with them? That's a very interesting question, Evelyn. So you're saying, like, look, maybe it's like, it's like those, um, those uh, release forms where if you don't actually, sorry, responsible because you don't know what's inside of it, right? But I think that might be a pretty modern approach. I think that until recently, I think the sense would be if you don't bother to ask questions, then you're kind of responsible, right? Because you should have. If you cared enough about the implications, if you were, I would say maybe in a different mode, if you were really serious about the undertaking, then you would read the fine print, right? If you really understood what you were getting into, you would read the fine print, you would think about whether you could do it. And there's almost a sense that the fifth sharecropper isn't thinking so clearly, right? He's just saying yes to say yes, but he's not really going to be able to, to follow through. And um, but he also had that, um, I don't know whether it's a parable or it's something actually in the Torah, I don't remember, um, the, the har, kafat kahar on top of the nation and forced them, so, you know, Naturally, if they're being forced into something, they'll say not to be smart without actually asking any questions. So there again, why blame them? <laughs> yeah, so that, that's a great point, everyone. And in fact, in our fourth source, that, that idea of God only holding the Torah over the heads of the people of Israel and not the other nations is going to emerge as one of the challenges of the other nations. Even for 
access to voice for people in Israel. Um, but I think in this address, what if you think about the parable, there's no sense over here that the sharecropper is under any sort of duress, right? The sharecropper is kind of being made the same offer as one, two, three, and four. No duress at all. The king seems to be totally neutral about who would say yes. And the only question really is, who's willing to do it? And I would say, based on, on this address, the sense seems to be that, yeah, God would be very happy for the other nations to receive the Torah. God would want anyone who wants to accept the Torah to receive it, um, which is a very kind of universal idea about the Torah, right? The Torah is there for whoever is willing to accept it. And... Um, it's very hard to do, so a person might very reasonably be reluctant to accept it, as sharecroppers want to free and for are reluctant. Um, but if you are willing to accept it, don't accept it on a wing. You have to kind of really be committed to it. That seems to be the point of source number two. Okay, I'm just going to move on to source number three in the interest of time. Um, source number three also kind of takes this idea in a different, in a different way. Um, source number three is from... Is from Eicharaba. Eicharaba, now we're back in the right chronological order. Um, if you refer to sort of early 3rd century, Eicharaba is thought to be probably early 5th century. Um, so it's roughly contemporary with the, uh, with the Jerusalem Talmud. Um, okay, and Eicharaba, of course, is a work of Midrash on the Book of Lamentations. It's often seen as a work of protest Midrash, right, of Eicharaba. If Eicharaba, the Book of Lamentations itself, is about the people of Israel kind of accepting responsibility for their sins and for their punishment, the Book of Eicharaba is kind of a protest against it, right? Basically, the, often the point of the Midrashim in Eicharaba is, God, did you really need to do this to us? Is this really what we deserve? Couldn't you have done something different? And, um, and this Midrash is no different. Here in Echarabah, we're told, It's like a parable of a king who got really angry at, um, at, a, at the matron. The matron seems to be his queen. He's very angry at her, and so he banishes her from his palace. Now, right from the start, right, the story begins at a point that makes us feel more sympathetic to the matron, because we have no idea why the king is angry, right? As we were told, the matron did this, this, and this, and then the king got angry, we might feel differently. But here, the king just gets angry. As far as we know, the matron has done nothing at all to, to incite the anger, and so, you know, she seems to be in a sad position. The king is really angry at her, the king banishes her from the palace. What does she do? Instead of actually leaving the palace, she goes and she hides behind a pillar. Now, as anybody who's ever played hiding your seat knows, uh, hiding behind a pillar is not a great hiding spot because the moment somebody walks on the other side of the pillar, they will see you, right? So sure enough, when Sahamilf over the king passes by, the Lalita, he sees her because she's not in a great hiding place. And the king says to her, your face is hard. You are so brazen. What are you doing here in my palace? I kicked you out. How is it that you're still here? The woman says back to the king, actually, my master, the king, it is entirely proper and fitting and appropriate that I am still here. Why? No other woman would have you except for me. I was the only one willing to marry you. And because I was the only one willing to marry you, you owe me now. You can't just kick me out just because you got me angry at me. The king says to her, What are you talking about? I disqualified every other woman in order to choose you. Right? You were the one I wanted 
always. What, what do you mean no other woman would have me other than you? I, I say no to everybody else in order to be with you. Amrala, the woman, the matron says back to the king, really, is that true that you chose me along? In king, she's really that so. What were you doing on such a such side street and in such a such court or in this in this place? Um, weren't you in all these different places because you were pursuing these different women who in the end would not have you? Um, and so basically, the, the wife says to the king, look, I know where you were. I know that you were going around pursuing all these other women. None of them would have you. I alone was willing to accept you. And given that I alone was willing to accept you, you really owe me something. You can't, you can't just turn me out now. Um, so now we move from the mashal to the mushal, from the parable back to the main story. Um, God says to the people of Israel, presumably God has gotten angry at the people of Israel, just like the king got angry at the matron. God has banished the people of Israel and exiled them from their land, just like the king has banished the matron from the palace. And the people of Israel do not want to leave. So God says to them, Your faces are so hard, you are so brazen. What are you still doing here? I, I kicked you out. And the people of Israel say back to God, They say, No, it is entirely fitting and right and appropriate that we are still here. Because no other nation would accept your Torah except for us. And by then, God says to them, God says, what are you talking about? I disqualified every other nation in order specifically to choose you. What do you mean no other nation would have, have my Torah except for, except for you? And we know, when the people of Israel say back to God, in King, if it's really true that you have been choosing us all along, what do you doing offering your Torah around to all the other nations? If you really wanted to give the Torah to us, why didn't you ask us first? Why didn't you offer the Torah to everybody else? To tell you, as we learned in the earlier Baita and the Mechita, in the beginning, God appeared to the descendants of Esau, as the verse says, And the descendants of Esau did not receive the Torah. Then God offers the Torah to the descendants of Ishmael, they also didn't accept it. As we know from the next part of the verse, Rafiya Meharqan, and God offers the Torah to Israel, and Israel accepts the Torah. As we know, the end of that verse. And God came forth from the myriads, and God's right hand was a fiery law unto them. And it says that the people of Israel responded, Whatever God has said, we will do, and we will hear. Um, okay, so, so, I, I really like this last version, uh, this third version of the, of the Midrash, because I think what we do over here is the sense that sometimes the same set of actions looks really different depending on whose perspective you have, right? In the Mishnah, in our source number one, the perspective was God's perspective, right? We know that God is offering the Torah around to the other nations because God doesn't want them to complain later, but God knows all along that they're going to say no. Right? And in fact, God engineers situations where they would definitely say no by specifically telling them the verses that are most, uh, the commandments rather, that are most difficult for that particular nation to keep. So, in Source 91, we know that all along God wants the Torah to go to the people of Israel. 
And it seems that we hear what we're told. We say, even though God might know that, it doesn't look that way to the people of Israel. What the people really just see is God offering around the Torah to everybody else, only coming to them last, and they feel kind of bad about it, right? Why are you the last choice? Why did you offer it to everyone else before me? Right? And making it into, instead of a receiving the Torah, making it into this idea of the king kind of proposing to all these other women who turn him down, other than the matron who in the end accepts him, right? We get this and say, yeah, you know, if you were the very last romantic partner, right, that was, that was being, you know, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, you know, the last person who's invited to a party or the last person who's being asked stuff that never feels good to anyone. And the people who's all saying, like, yeah, that really wasn't so good for us. Here we were standing at Sinai, and you knew who you got were offering the tour around to everybody else other than us. Um, you know, that's not bad to us, but we were still willing to accept your Torah. <laughs> well, we were willing to accept your Torah. Therefore, God, you now, you, you owe us something special, right? We, we have become special, not necessarily because we accepted the Torah, but we've become special because we were the only ones willing to accept the Torah. Which is an interesting view on that kind of particular status of the people of Israel, right? In source number one, God all along wants Israel to get the Torah, and God engineers a situation where it's only it's only Israel who will accept it. In source number two, God seems to be actually entirely neutral about who accepts the Torah. Basically, whoever's willing to, that's great. In source number three, we're told, even if from God's perspective, God was planning all along for Israel to get the Torah, from Israel's perspective, Israel says, well, it feels to us like actually we were your last choice, God, but we were still willing to do it, and because we alone were willing to accept the Torah, therefore... We're special because no one else was willing to do what we're doing. We're not special because you chose us. We're special because we chose you, right? We were the only people, even though we came last, we were the only people willing to, uh, to say yes. Um, okay, let's now look at uh, source number four. Um, source number four always makes them feel kind of sympathetic almost for God. Because if you remember, in source number one, we were told, uh, you know, the whole idea of offering the Torah around to the other nations was specifically in order to um, to bring about, you know, to forestall any p- potential complaints later on. And when we find out, out over here in source number four is that it doesn't really work. The other nations still will have complaints. Um, source number four is from the Babylonian Talmud, from uh, Tractate of the Dazara. Uh, the Babylonian Talmud, most scholars think, was put together around 500 or 600 so, so it's the next one in line after Rishon Abba, certainly before Shemot Abba, which source number two, which was much later. Um, and here, this text over here, from the, the beginning of, um, sorry, it should not be, yeah, this is right. Uh, this this uh, this source over here um, from the beginning of Masachet Avodah begins with this this particular vision of the end of days. We're told the last Rabbi Chanina Bar Papa, the Tema Rabbi Sinai, the following teaching was said either in the name of Rabbi Chanina Bar Papa or in the name of Rabbi Sinai. La Atidlevo Nevi'a Kadosh Baruch Hu Sefer Torah Umenichol Bechiko. At the end of days, this is what God will do. God will bring the Sefer Torah place the Sefer Torah in God's bosom, and God will say, Any person who has busied themselves with the study of Torah, with the keeping of the Torah, let them now come forward and receive their reward. So as soon as they hear that there's reward being given out, 
all these other obnoxious nations kind of join together uh, <laughs> that I have over here. Anybody's ever tried to get onto a crowded bus in Israel? You know that kind of like everybody kind of comes forward trying to like push to the front? That's my image of the world. They all come forward to Irubia because they all want the reward that is on offer. Um, and how do we know this? We know this from a verse in the book of Isaiah. All of the nations gather together uh, in order to uh, to receive the Torah. Don't you concern for my baby? God says, no, no, this is not proper. Don't come to me all kind of mixed together in one group. Let each and every nation come separately with its scribes. We can discuss whether they've kept the Torah, and then we can see if they will get a reward. The Gemara now says, Is there really such a thing as like a jumble of people before God? Doesn't, isn't God able to kind of see each individual separately, no matter how many people are standing there before God? Why would God care if there was a whole, you know, tumultuous mixture of people coming forward? And the response the Gemara gives is, Really, the reason why God doesn't want them to be in this whole kind of jumbled crowd in front of God is not because it matters to God, but rather God wants each and every nation separately to hear the message that God has for that nation. Right? So if we were to sort of think about it maybe from a little bit of a question of like universal versus particular, like the Ibuvia, that jumbled mass of people is kind of this universal notion of everybody coming forward at the same time. And God seems to be saying, no, I actually have a particular message for each particular group of people, and therefore I need for people to kind of come forward in an orderly Right, the first group of people to come and try to get a reward are the people of the kingdom of Edom. So God begins to interview them to see whether they've kept the Torah and they deserve their reward. God says to them, What have you busied yourself with? What have you occupied yourself with? People of Edom respond and they say, We want to show them how we built many marketplaces, how built many bathhouses, how we amassed tons of gold and silver. And actually, when we gathered all the when we built the, the markets and the bathhouses and we gathered all the gold and the silver, we really did it all for the sake of Israel. So that way the people of Israel would be able to learn Torah. In other words, people of Israel, we didn't want them to have to build their own bathhouses, organize their own markets, gather their own riches. We did all of this work just so that Israel could learn Torah, and therefore we deserve to be rewarded for Israel's Torah. God responds and says, Shutim Shibaulam, you foolish people, Kormash Asitem, Mitzorach Atzlechem Asitem. All of the things that you did, you really only did it for yourselves. You didn't do it for the people of Israel. Tikantim Shvakim, why did you establish markets not to make life easier for the people of Israel so they could buy produce without having to plant it themselves? But rather, why do you have these markets? You just wanted a place for your prostitutes to sit. The bathhouses wasn't because you cared about the public hygiene of the people of Israel. You just wanted to indulge and pamper yourselves. And the fact that you amassed a lot of gold and silver, kisses is how shady. And God says the gold and silver actually all belongs to me anyway. As we know from the verse in Haggai, we have kissed the Lehazahav and Umashem Tzalzah.
all of the gold and silver belongs to God, says God. So basically, you didn't do these, the various things that you spent your time on, you didn't do them in order to help out the people of Israel. You just did it entirely uh, for yourselves. Now, for people who are in the summer Korah, if you remember yesterday, we saw a very interesting story in Masachat Shabbat, where um, uh, one of the rabbis, Rabbi Yehuda, praises the Romans for building um, markets and bathhouses and um, and, uh, and bridges. And if you remember, it's Rabbi Shimon who basically says in that, not exactly what God says over here, the Romans, when they built these things, they just built them for their own pleasures. They built these bathhouses just to pay for themselves. They built these markets, not for commerce, but just in order to have a place for the prostitutes to find their, their clients. So it's all, it's all just for themselves. So, uh, so it seems like that is a uh, um, a familiar kind of idea, right? That the Romans it might seem as if they have done this great public works, but really it was all, all just for themselves. Um, and uh, and so therefore, God does not accept their idea that they are deserving of reward for Torah for enabling the people of Israel to to keep the Torah. And instead, God asks them, "Can Yishlochem Magid Zait? Can any of you people from Rome do any of you know the Torah?" Because in that uh, original version of Isaiah that this whole uh, Gemara started off with, right? God says, you know, can any of you speak this? But in Zot Torah, the word Zot refers to the Torah itself. As we know from Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Zot HaTorah This is the law that uh, Moses set before the people of Israel. And so Zot, the word Zot refers to the Torah. And therefore in the version of Isaiah, when we're told, Can any of you talk about this? I mean, are any of you well-versed in the Torah? And of course, no one in the room is well-versed in the Torah. And we're told, Yad yetzkut So the people of Rome depart, and they are all sort of feeling dejected, right? They were hoping that they were going to be able to advance the argument that would get them a reward, but in fact, they are not successful. Yetzkut So the people of Rome leave. The kingdom of Persia comes in afterwards, and they too are hoping to be able to collect a reward. God says to them, the Maya Septim, well, what have you occupied yourself with? What have you been doing with your time? And they say, Lord of the world, how big We built bridges, how big We conquered cities, how big We waged wars, the Quran Israel, and all of these things that we did, we really only did it for the sake of Israel, to so they would be able to learn Torah. We took care of all these other things, just so that way they could learn Torah, and therefore we deserve to be rewarded for their Torah. God says, actually, all those things that you did, you just did them for yourselves. Why did you build bridges? Not because you wanted to make it easier for people to travel, just because you wanted to correct tolls. It's an interesting idea about bridges, right? The goal of the bridge, the bridge builder, is just to be able to collect a toll. Krahim and all those cities that you subdued, it wasn't for the sake of the people of Israel, but rather, you wanted to be able to sort of impose forced labor and so you conquered cities in order to have, uh, you know, to have slaves, basically, who could, who could force to work for you. And when it comes to wars, I will see, to go to, I actually run all the wars. You know from the song of the sea, God is a, is a man of war, and God says, any wars that happen that are productive, God says, I, I am the one involved in them. 
which is actually a really interesting idea. Um, but is there any one of you who can speak Zot, who knows the Torah? As we saw before, the verse in Isaiah says, can any of you say Zot? And Zot refers to the Torah. And of course, northern Persia, none of the Persians have learned any Torah, and um, so none of them can speak the words of Torah. And so the Persians also retreat from God, also feeling dejected because they are not going to receive this reward. And the Lord now, as a side note, says, But when the Persians saw that the roaming argument didn't win, right, the Romans who said, we built markets, we built bathhouses, we collected gold and silver, if that argument wasn't any good, why did the Persians think that their argument about um, building bridges and subduing cities and waging uh, war, why did they think that would be any better? And Divas says, well, maybe they thought to themselves, maybe they thought to themselves, well, the Romans destroyed the temple, but we, the Persians, rebuilt it, or at least, you know, allowed it to be rebuilt. And so therefore, maybe the Persians thought they had a better chance, but it turns out that they did. The story now says, In fact, each and every nation comes forward, tries to make an argument about how what they did was really for the sake of Israel, so that Israel could learn Torah, and each and every nation is rejected. Um, so, I left out a small part of it here in the interest of time, because I think it is Evelyn, I think because of your point, I'll just tell you that at this point in the story, um, the other nations say, well, wait a minute, if you had offered us the Torah, we would have received it, and then God says, I did offer you the Torah, and they say, okay, fine, you offered us the Torah, but you didn't hold that mountain over our heads the way you held the mountain over the heads of the people of Israel. Um, and in the end, the nations say to God, They say, look, okay, fine, the people of Israel, they accepted the Torah, but they didn't actually keep the Torah, right? And this reminds us, of course, of source number two in Shemot Rabbah, right? The idea that you can, like, sort of happily accept the Torah, but if you're then not willing to follow up on your acceptance, does it really mean anything? Like, the fifth sharecropper accepted the field, but if the fifth sharecropper wasn't willing to work the field, how valuable is the acceptance? So the, so the other nations say, look, Israel might have accepted the Torah, but they haven't kept the Torah, and if they haven't kept the Torah, they are better than we are, and we should all receive the same word. Amarna Makadoshvahu am. God responds to them and God says, Look, I can testify myself that the people of Israel have kept the whole Torah. At which point the nations say something that is, you know, pretty close to it. They say, But we can say, God, you really not. We're not a valid witness over here. <laughs> you can't testify that the people of Israel have kept the Torah because we know that parents cannot testify about their children, and we know that God thinks of the people of Israel as God's children, as we know from the verse in Exodus chapter four. Believe the Chaim Israel. Right? God says, "You, Israel, are sorry. English is over here. Israel is my firstborn." Um, and so therefore, God, we are not a valid witness. So God says, fine, I won't be the one to testify. We can never do the Israel Shekinah Tatarakula. 
God says, okay, I'll call upon witnesses from amongst you, from amongst you other nations of the world, and they will testify that Israel has kept the Torah. Let me come and testify that Abraham did not worship idols, even though we were thrown into a fiery furnace as a result. Let Lavan come and testify about Yaakov. Yaakov, in fact, did not steal anything, even though Lavan kept uh, switching his salary around and he accused Yaakov of stealing his, uh, his idols, but in fact, Yaakov did not. Let the Potiphar's wife come and testify about your safe that he did not commit adultery with her despite the fact that she tried to seduce him. Let the come and testify that Hanani Mishal and Azariah did not bow down to an idol. Uh, let King Darius come and testify about Daniel that he continued to pray to God, even though Darius tried to force him to pray to Darius. Let the four friends of Job, of Eov, come and testify also that the people of Israel have kept the whole Torah. As the verse that appears in the verse from Isaiah says, they will listen and they will say, yes, it is, it is true. Um, okay, so this part over here is kind of interesting. Like God is sort of summoning witnesses from among the other nations to testify that the people of Israel have kept the Torah. Um, to some extent, it's a little bit unfair, right? Because we're kind of choosing the, like, the heroes of the people of Israel, right? The fact that these people didn't sin doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of Israel kept the Torah. But um, one of the points that uh, Professor Jeffrey Rubenstein in his uh, book where he discusses the story, one of the points that he makes is that these uh, these different stories undercut the nation's argument that uh, they they did everything in order to help Israel keep the Torah because these are all all examples of um, various figures who tried to incite the people of Israel into sinning. Right, Nimrod tries to make. Uh, Abraham bowed down to idols. Ishak Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, tries to seduce uh, Joseph into committing adultery and so forth. And so the idea is that actually the people of Israel keep the Torah um, in, you know, against the, the, the wishes and desires of the other nations who keep on trying to present them to give them the Torah. Okay, so this is not a winning argument, right? That other nations try to say the people of Israel didn't keep the Torah, and God says, no, no, they really did. So now the nations need a new thing to say because they still really want to get their word. This is what they say. They say, give us another chance. Okay, it's true. You offered it to us before at Sinai. They all said no, but let's try again. Right? Give it to us now, Marosh, and we will definitely keep it. Now we will say yes. A person who works hard to prepare for Shabbat, that person has food to eat and enjoy on Shabbat. The person who, you know, lies about all day and does not work to prepare food for Shabbat, what will that person eat on Shabbat? Which is kind of an interesting image. But I think the idea seems to be, now that we're at the point of getting rewarded, now's not really the time where it means anything to accept the Torah. Right? You have to accept the Torah without fully knowing what the reward is in the moment. Um, and if you're only accepting it right now because I'm giving out rewards, that, that kind of doesn't really count. 
Um, but now just ever after Pichel, even though it is really too late for me, it's still mitzvah kalayish. And I do have one small mitzvah that I'll give you as a practice mitzvah to see how you do with it. The sukkah shema. Right? The mitzvah I'm giving you is to build a sukkah. Mechuda surata. Go and do it. Right? Go and build your sukkah and let's see how you do with your one mitzvah. Um, the northern says, it's already, it really makes sense that God is telling them this. Don't know from the maybe that mitzvot are only um, valid and valuable if you are not rewarded immediately upon doing them. Right? The idea, of, the idea behind doing a mitzvah, the idea behind performing one of God's commandments is that you don't immediately get rewarded for it. If you were immediately going to get rewarded for it, it wouldn't have the same moral weight. Right? When the people of Israel accept the Torah at Sinai, the reason why that matters is because they're not going to be immediately rewarded for it. They're going to have to perform all these things. So with a sense that they are doing God's will, and at some point in the future, God will reward them for it. Um, so why is God offering the other nations a mitzvah right now? And the response is, why does he do this? Why does God do this? God doesn't want to be too harsh to God's creatures, right? And so if, uh, if all the other nations are saying, please just give us another chance, God is, doesn't, isn't going to reject their plea outright, so God gives them a chance, and the chance is the mitzvah of sukkah. And now the Mazar has a question. The Mazar says, Why specifically is Sukkah called a very easy, simple mitzvah? But it's actually not so simple. We have an entire Masachet that talks about exactly how the Sukkah needs to be built and what it needs to be made of and so forth. And so the reason why it's considered to be relatively easy is because it's not very expensive. You can construct a sukkah, I mean, this depends what kind of sukkah you buy, but in theory, you can construct a sukkah out of very inexpensive materials, and so therefore it's considered to be a mitzvah kala because it doesn't cost a lot to do it, and so God says, can you do this mitzvah? It doesn't cost a lot, let's see how you will do it. So the other nations are really excited. They want the Torah. What do they do? Immediately, each one of the each and every one of the people goes and builds a sukkah on his roof. Uh, one of the other points that uh, that Professor Lucy makes about about the story that I like a lot is that um, remember the kinds of things that the Romans and the Persians are really proud of building are bathhouses and bridges and markets, right? Like sort of serious large structures. And what God now asks them to do in terms of keeping the Torah is not to build something heavy and weighty and like you know, impressive that will last, but really to build something very transient, right? To build a sukkah doesn't need to last forever. It can be made of very humble materials, but that's really, if you build that for God, that is more valuable than these, you know, stone structures that are built for themselves. Um, and so the nations are very eager, right? Each one of them goes and builds a sukkah on his or her roof. What does God do? God brings a um, a summer heat, right? A very hot sun, right? Uh, it's the season of Tammuz right now for those of us who are out in the sun today or on Monday. We might remember how hot it was, right? So, uh, so God. Breezes upon them this burning hot sun of Tammuz. The call had the had that And each and every one of these nations of the world who built their own sukkah, what do they do? They kick their sukkah and they leave because it's so uncomfortable. 
Chimney Online, and we pulled a source from, from Psalms that supports the idea that he does. Well, the video is kind of innocent in the fact that God causes the sun to blaze upon the other nations in their support. We're told, Makdir, Vahamait, Enakadishrachu, Babi Chimonia, in Yutav. So we say, wait a second, why does God cause it to be so hot? I thought the point was that God doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't deal um, in this very, um, peremptory way with um, with the other nations, and so uh, if God doesn't deal imperiously with these other with the other with God's creations, then why is God sort of taunting them by making it so hot? That doesn't seem particularly nice or fair. And the response is, we should have um, we say, well, actually, um, the reason why God causes it to be so hot is that sometimes, even for the people of Israel, the really hot season of Tammuz continues on all the way until the festival of Sukkot, and sometimes it's really hot for the people of Israel and their Sukkot too. So God wants the other nations to experience the Sukkot with a full range of experiences that Israel also has, and so therefore God causes it to be really hot. And the guy says, well, but wait a second, if it's really hot, it's the air patrol sukkah. Didn't Rama teach that if you're really uncomfortable in your sukkah, you can leave? And so, actually, when the other nations leave their sukkah, they're really doing something that the people of Israel do, because if the people of Israel are really uncomfortable in their sukkah, they're also allowed to leave. And the response is, right? It's true that the people of Israel are exempt from their Sukkot if they're uncomfortable, but when they leave their Sukkot because they're uncomfortable, they don't kick their Sukkot. They leave with a sense of sadness, right? They, what they really want to do is keep the mitzvah of Sukkot, and if they can't because it's uncomfortable, then they're sad about it. They don't kick the Sukkot in anger. Um, and I think... I think the point maybe that the story is trying to make is that, well, let's say the very end of it, and I'm going to talk about the point. And uh, they told him, right? And God, when God sees us, God just laughs, because God kind of knew that this is the way it was going to go the whole time. Shememar, as we know from the verse in Tehillim, that God kind of laughs at the whole um, the way that this whole thing plays out. Um, but I think if you were to sort of think about that, the main question of this last verse, which is, what if the other nations want a second chance? Right? We understand, even if we accept the Agatic proposition that God has offered the Torah around to everybody beforehand, um, maybe the fact that they said no at the beginning doesn't mean that they're always going to say no. Maybe doesn't God, if the other nations are, are willing to accept the Torah later on in the story, then wouldn't God want them to accept that Torah? Right? Wouldn't God want this kind of universal acceptance of the Torah to be the case? Um, and I think what happens in the story is that we get the sense that God is, is willing to give the other nations a chance, but God isn't going to make it easy for them. Right? God makes it difficult for them. Um, and the reason why God makes it difficult for them is that God wants to see how they will react to the difficulty. Because it doesn't really matter if they stay in the Sukkah or not. Because even the people of Israel are allowed to leave their Sukkah if Sukkah. What really matters is how they feel about it. Right? When they, if the other nations kick their Sukkot on the way out, it means they don't love God's Torah, they don't love them, they're not happy to perform them and sad when they can't. Instead, they're just kind of, you know, angry at the whole endeavor. Whereas the people of Israel, the sense is they have the right kind of feeling about, about the Torah. And so, regardless of whether it's true that we all of Israel kept the Torah, or, or all of Israel, you know, maybe some of them didn't, either way, on the whole, the people of Israel 
love the Torah and care about God's commandments, and that seems to be, at least for this source, that is why they, they wind up being chosen. So, I think this source kind of plays with the idea that um, the other nations are, are offered the Torah rejected, but then they might want another shot at it. But I think the sense ultimately is that the reason why the other nations don't get to have the Torah based on, at least on this story, is not because God kind of, um, uh, you know, creates a situation where they won't want to say yes to it. It's because ultimately they don't have the same feeling as the people of Israel. And it could be that the feeling of the people of Israel that kind of impels them to say, yes, whatever God says we'll do, which might be kind of a little bit too, um, you know, overly blind or not, not serious enough in instance number two, I think the sense is that that feeling though is actually the sort of redemptive thing for the people of Israel because they, they love these commandments and they, and they, they uh, they're sad when they, when they don't get to keep them. Um, so the way to kind of think about, uh, about this sources overall, right, I think we get the sense that the rabbis are really interested in this question of why do the people of Israel in particular get the Torah? Right? Why is it only for them? Isn't there something that is kind of unfair about that? Um, and so as a way of sort of thinking that through, right, I think they create this idiotic idea that the other nations also have a chance. God offers it to them. Um, and depending on which source you're looking at, God either offers it to the other nations in a neutral way, where they could have said yes or they could have said no, or God offers it to the other nations, and if they really wanted it, they could have said yes, but God doesn't make it easy for them, like God specifically tells them the, uh, you know, the mitzvah that would be difficult for them. Um, and I think there's a sense that the people of Israel want this particular relationship with God, but they really feel a little threatened by these other nations, right? And they, it's certainly in, in source number three, in Echalabah, they kind of feel the last reason they were to the party, they don't feel great about that. Um, but ultimately, it's the way the people of Israel sort of feel about the Torah, it, that's what really matters. And the beginning, the excitement that causes them to say, Nasev and Ishma seems to be the reason why they alone are able to receive the Torah. And in the end, in our last sense, the way that they feel about performing the mitzvah is really what matters. Given the way that when it's really hot, both the other nations of the world and also the people of Israel leave their Sukkot, but the people of Israel don't keep their Sukkot, they are sad to leave their Sukkot, and that means that they have kind of a love for God's Torah, and that um, I think we would extend it out to say that anyone else who would have that feeling, right, would have a feeling of love for God's Torah and that kind of willingness to accept the Torah as a whole, but we would also be welcome. God would want everyone else who is willing to kind of feel the way the people of Israel do about it, but, um, but there's a sense that most people don't, and that is why you know, the, the Torah becomes the purview specifically of Israel. Okay, it is 9.01, so I will stop talking. I'm so happy to stay if people have questions. I see Judith has a question, but obviously if anyone needs to leave, they should feel free to do so. Uh, Judith, please, what is your question? You said before that the story is told from different perspectives, and it changes the same scene as seen differently from different perspectives. This last explanation is obviously being seen from the perspective of the Jewish people. This is how they see themselves and their attachment to God. I have this feeling that it left the door open because Christianity took exactly that position and said, you know what, we're better at keeping, and we're the new Israel because the relationship has shifted from you to us, 
precisely for that. In, in other words, I feel like they're, they're using the same kind of reasoning, but it's from the perspective of one of the nations. Not yeah. See, I think what's interesting about that is that I think ultimately it feels as if like the way that people in Israel feel about the commandments is what matters, but it still is the commandments, right? It's not how they feel about God. It's how they feel specifically about like throughout throughout the discussion group, what it means to accept the Torah is to keep the commandments. It's not to have any particular belief, right? When the when the other nations say what's written in the Torah, God doesn't say the living God, that's it, right? It's not about belief, it's always about an action, right? Don't steal, you know, do build a sukkah, whatever it is, right? the people of Israel keep the laws, and they're willing to keep the laws, and they love the laws, and that is what makes the Torah theirs, and I think, I think that might be sort of the kind of counter-Christian polemic here, right? Right? Christians think it's about kind of sort of the way you feel about God, not specifically keeping the commandments of the Torah. And I think all of these stories put the commandments kind of front and center in terms of like what it is that you, what, what, it, would be, what it means to keep the Torah is, is specifically to keep the laws. But thank you so much for the comment. Um, okay, any other questions or thoughts? Uh, Sarah, I don't know if you saw, were there any other questions in the chat that I might have missed? Um, there's a lot of conversation back and forth. I don't think there were any specific questions necessarily um, to bring up at this point, but there was a lot of really great conversation. Okay, great. Well, I'm excited to read it afterwards. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a great pleasure to work with everybody. For the people on screen, it was really nice to watch your faces as we were learning together. Uh, so thanks for keeping your cameras on. Uh, okay, great. So should we just log out? Is that the... Uh, I think we're going to wrap up and a plug for everyone. Um, so thank you so much for teaching such a, fashion, such a fascinating class. Um, and then also for everyone attending, thank you for joining us on Zoom, Drisha Live, and Facebook. Um, our next uh, a bit of summer programming will continue on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. with the next class in Rabbi David Silver series, Isaac and Rebecca, Partners in Succession. And the next session in this series on universalism and particularism will be a week from today, next Wednesday at 8 p.m., with Dr. Marko Zisinkovich teaching on the early development of Jew Jewish universalism from the Bible to the rabbinic period. And you can find out more information about all of those classes, as well as all of our summer programming on our website at www.drisha.org slash classes. Um, so again, thank you everyone for being here, and we hope to see you again soon at Drisha.